City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. That was Young Warriors with Just a Thought, and you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 8.55am, and the time is 9.04. We've got Kevin and Corey. That's right, we do have Corey, and uh, I think they were well-named Young Warriors, because I thought they were at war with the music. Anyway, that's another question. <laughs> um, um, but that's, that's just my oldie opinion, isn't it? I, I brought in some Nick Drake for you. <laughs> oh, good. So you, you can choose the song. <laughs> All right. We'll, here we are. We'll get back to that later. Uh, here we go. Um, and uh, City Limits today, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month, and we've got, um, we're going to be talking to Dave Sweeney in the first half of the show, Corey. Dave, of course, from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Um, he's their nuclear campaigner, or whatever he's called. Mm-hmm. Um, or I suppose anti-nuclear campaigner, if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what, what, coincidentally, there's a front-page story in this morning's Financial Review, Coalition Warms to Nuclear. And, of course, we, we're getting on because they did appoint yesterday a bloke called Alan Finkel as their new chief scientist, and he's a great proponent of nuclear energy for Australia. Nuclear energy always gives me that warm <laughs> green glow as well. Yes, that's right. The green glow in particular and yellow cake turns green, so to speak. It's very nice, isn't it? Deep in um, my heart. Deep, Yes, exactly. And then it um, gives the um, investors the green glow of money. It does indeed, and that's what it's all about, of course, and uh, that's what Alan's all about, one assumes. He, 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 he wants, though, to... Uh, he said we have to have a fossil-free future, and he said we, we should be able to achieve that in 30 or 40 years. So he's when him and his generation yeah, he's die ob- out. He's obviously taking it very seriously. Um, but we're going to talk about that and, and relate to that also, the fact that Alan's there and the government's saying that uh, science and business have to work much more closely together We've recently talked about the CSIRO having a, a pure business person, not non-scientist, appointed as head. Again, we feel the same things happening and even the prospect there of maybe it being privatised. And, and unis simultaneously are being told that research has to work much more closely with business and accept business money and all. So we'll talk to Dave about those factors as well, that in fact we're, we're, turning, these, we're turning research all over the place into purely commercial and of course the other side of that is that a lot of things that might deserve research aren't going to get it if there isn't a bottom line that that turns over those green dollars you're talking about Mm, the famous one being malaria exactly so uh that mainly affects poor people exactly all those things so we'll talk about all that and we did plan to have i think we advertised that kate shaw was coming on from melbourne university um planner um, our irregular, regular planning commentator who was mm-hmm. coming on to talk about a number of issues to do with planning in this city. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, Kate rang me this morning to say that she had a family bereavement yesterday and mm. uh, I thought it a touch insensitive to say maybe you should still come on. So, um, But anyway, no, but quite seriously, um, you know, we're going to commiserations to, to Kate and her family and um, she's coming on though in two weeks to do that. So it'll be our energy day, but we'll talk about all those things to do. And energy, of course, does come into how cities work anyway, so it's uh, it's related. 
So uh, that's the program. So after Dave, we might have to do a bit of a rave today or play some of that music or something. So it, it might music. be it might be City Limits Light today or something, <laughs> um, well, well, we were going to talk about one thing. Um, yes. Our old mate Martin Shkreli. Now, he's the the excellent person who uh, took the toxoplasm. I'll just pour a cup of tea, by the way, while you're doing that. No. All right. I want to thank Ian, um, who comes on to um, Robbie Thorpe's program, Fire First. Yes. Because Ian was in the kitchen, but the, the, the hot water thing isn't working, but he put the kettle on for us and he brought us down a pot of tea. So isn't he nice? And I'll pour it. Thank you, yes. Ian. Thank you, Ian. And, um, yeah, it's good having chats with you in the courtyard. So, Martin Shkrelis, if you haven't heard this story already, you probably have. Um, so, <laughs> he bought um, this toxo, uh, the patent for a toxoplasmosis drug, which particularly affects AIDS patients, and turned the price of one pill from $13.50 into $750. Um, well, originally it was much more, actually. It was going to be thousands per pill. Oh, it, no, no, 750 just... per pill, thousands per the whole treatment. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. I'm, oh, well, I'm, I'm mis- misjudging the poor soul. Yes, yes. And um, But now a company's come out um, called uh, Imprimus Cares, and they're going to make over 7,800 FDA-approved generic drugs available at an affordable price, including a drug that can be used in the same way as... This other drug, so they're going to be selling it for $1 a pill. <laughs> it's a difference, isn't it? <laughs> so, so it's a mere $749 difference per pill. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, which, so if people have a choice between the generic model or the original, they say, well, is it worth the extra 749 to buy the original? Mm, is it 750 times better? Yeah. Anyway, hopefully that means Martin Shkreli's lost everything. Hope so. Mm. Yeah, but it is amazing, isn't it? That's, and that that and people wonder why people were concerned about the pharmaceutical conditions of the free trade agreements that that we've done, particularly with America and the latest one, of course, the TPP. But uh, mm. that's the very reason why. With people like this, I wonder about um, how you know their actions must affect the Australian PBS as well, because when the government's subsidising the drugs, you know, there's less of a a push from consumers in the market to have it cheaper because, you know, you don't think about it. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's what government says. People should have to realise the full cost. That's why they want to be. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, obviously. <laughs> but I, I, I'm thinking like a guy like him could jack up the price and then charge the Australian taxpayer double and, you know, more or less get away with it. I mean, this mm. time, you know, he ducked up the price by, thousand, you know. Very much so. A lot more than double, but... um, <laughs> mm. But it also shows, I mean, they say, well, they want extra time because of the costs in, in research, etc., to produce it. But it shows how much they're ripping off during that period when mm. they've got the sole patent on the thing anyway. Well, he didn't research it. He didn't pay for no, it. No, well, he still got a hold of it. He got hold of the patent and ran it. And yeah, that's right. He, he probably saw it more as a business thing than a, a health thing, I would have thought, maybe, even Corey, do you mm. think or not? Or was he... Did he have compassion for the patients paying their three thousand, whatever the thousands it was, to have the full business? Um, I don't know. I guess the sort of compassion that any sort of a person has if they're holding a gun to your head and say, "Give me seven hundred fifty dollars or die." Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, and I guess if you haven't got the seven fifty, I suppose that's what happens. Mm. Out you go. 
Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty full on. The American health yeah. system is actually quite interesting. Um, they spend all, uh, about fifteen percent of their GDP on healthcare in America. Um, in Australia, it's about uh, like nine to eleven percent, much less. Mm. And then in England, where they have the NHS, it's more like seven percent of their GDP. Yeah, and we have a levy, of course, that's supposed to provide free healthcare, although. As if prices do expand, and they should increase the levy, of course, they, but they don't do that. They then look at other ways, like cutting other elsewhere or whatever. But the sensible solution to health is, and what's what the Medicare system was about, and the original Medibank as well, until Fraser abolished it, um, is that um, the levy pays for free health care for everybody, which is a sensible thing. Mm. And, and the levy is based on a percentage of your wage. So while it's the same percentage, it's still the rich do pay more if you know if they if they were. But you know we know they probably get around it. But nonetheless, mm. ostensibly, it's a progressive thing in, in that sense. But with those numbers, having the the public private system in Australia is you know actually a lot more expensive than having a completely public system. And then in America, having an almost completely mm. private system mm. is is even more expensive. And with worse health outcomes. And we've moved toward that, of course. I mean, under, under Howard, where they brought in the uh, the, sub, the subsidy to yeah. people for private health care. So that's encouraging it. And it's public money. It's part of that subsidy that's now going to subsidise people in private health mm. and private hospitals and, and, and private companies running health schemes. Which, and, of course, Medibank Private was recently privatised. Um, <laughs> And um, it's already cutting. It's already saying to hospitals, we won't. We won't, in fact, fund certain services. In fact, so it, it's it's already ripping off in that sense as well. So what yeah, sort of whole, services? Well, it's it's saying that um, it's saying to private hospitals, if you do, if if someone has a follow up service because of something that went wrong or whatever, we're not going to fund that anymore. So the so either the hospital has to bear the cost or the patient who hmm. was stuffed up in the first place, but. And they but they've got it. I mean, they're obviously going beyond that because I don't know. I don't know. Can't name them. But there's a list. There's a. It's an enormous list they've now drawn up of of, of services they won't fund, and procedures they won't fund. Mm. Um, in in certain circumstances, it's quite amazing. So I know yeah. there's um, definitely been huge cuts to mental health um, funding. Now they're down to, you get ten shrink appointments a year. Um, you know, a couple of years ago it was twelve. Before that, it was, yeah. you know, as many as you need. And it should be free all the time. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. I mean, some people could, suffering from mental health issues, could also exacerbate it by worrying about having to pay for the next mm. turn. Yeah, definitely. And that's yeah. for a rebate. I mean, you know, you still have the gap. You have, ah, you have so 10 appointments right. with the rebate. So it's not 100% free. No. Unless you happen to be in such a serious state that you happen to get one of the government uh, psychologists or psychiatrists, and then you're definitely stuck with only your 10 appointments a year. Yeah, well, there was an interesting story running around the last couple of days. I wasn't aware of it, but it's obviously been going on for a long time, where insurance companies um, insuring people on travel insurance won't pay if you've got a mental illness. Um, a woman's taken them to court this week and the case is still proceeding. Hmm. But she she booked an overseas trip and then and she suffered from depression and she had a bout of depression and the doctor advised her not to go overseas the way she felt. So she then claimed the, the fare that she'd already paid, 1400 or something, hmm. um, from the insurance company who said, no, we have a clause that we don't, um, we don't uh, rebate for mental illness. And the story then said that a lot of people are in the same boat. Um, it, it's quite amazing. It, it seemed, and uh, clearly it, uh, it discriminates very heavily. Mm. 
Uh, yes. Well, mental health mm. isn't taken seriously by a lot of people, unfortunately. No, that's very true and very, it is unfortunate, yeah. Especially um, the government. Yeah. Can I, just speaking mm. of, um, just one that I knew you'd love, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's a, there's a, a, a um, coal seam gas, um, a low energy value LNG uh, in coal seam gas, and it's called, you know what it's called? Happy Fun Profits. Girly gas. Girly gas, it's called. One stub girly gas because of its low energy value. Now, I, when I read that, I thought, oh. I thought to myself, I'll bet it wasn't a woman who named it girly gas. Girl. <laughs> oh. Did you see that um, also in England they had um, a company come out and say that women don't understand fracking? That's why they're against it. <laughs> I didn't see that. <laughs> Uh, so all those women on the picket line should get off them. They, yeah. they have no idea what they're doing. What about the blokes? They had the blokes at the picket line. How do they, do they understand it? Maybe they've been misled by the women's wily ways. Could well be mm, those farmers' straight. wives. Those farmers' wives are dangerous people. Straight to the picket line. Oh, goodness me! Yes. <laughs> I miss that little gym. <laughs> Isn't it revolting? Yep. Yep. And there's in America, there's a bloke called Carl Icahn, I-C-A-H-N. I'm pronouncing it Icahn. I'm not sure that's how he does it pronounce it. But he's one of their best-known activist investors. And he's come out attacking the government, saying they're driving people offshore. And uh, great American companies like Burger King are now putting their headquarters overseas because they've got to pay too much tax. <laughs> There's always oh. been tax havens. Yes, isn't it terrible? He's, he's only worth $21.5 billion, by the way. Oh. Yeah, but he's he's long criticised publicly underperforming management and public pressure to force changes in strategy. That is, that is changes that make him even richer. Well, when you got twenty one and a half million, I suppose you you need. Well, a lot didn't more you money. say billion before? Which is billion? It? Yeah, billion. I said billion. I just said billion the second time. I don't know how that came out. But okay. anyway, um, yeah, when you've got twenty one and a half billion, I suppose um, you need more and more, don't you? Mm. I always so say. So what's an activist investor? Oh, he's a, he's a bit like I think that Buffett bloke. You know, they, they it's all they do. So in fact, they make all that money by making absolutely nothing. The only thing they make is money in a sense for themselves. Wait, what's the activist bit? Well, the activist is, I suppose, he's active on the stock exchange. I assume uh... that's what it means, and he's buying and selling and carrying on and. Uh, all of which, of course, and in fact, um, because the stock exchange is interesting, because if you think about it, uh, a company raises money to start up, mm-hmm. and it has shares. So people buy the shares, and they give the money, and the company gets the money, and it starts up. But once it's started up, for the rest of history, as the shares, like BHP shares these days, as the shares are exchanged, that's nothing to do with the company. It's a totally separate matter. Mm. So people who buy at you know, hundreds of dollars for a share or something... Um, it's doing nothing for the company at all. It's just exchanging money on what is a great big betting ring, which I know all about. Yes. Um, at not that particular betting ring, but I know betting rings. Yes. Um, et cetera. So it's, it's all you know, a load of you know what. All right. We're going to go to a track now. And come back and talk to Dave Sweeney. Yes. This is um, The Boat People with 
supernova. Supernovaing along there, and um, well, it's um, almost the same, I suppose, as supernova, and um, you could send it out to space. Uh, we should get all the all the uranium off the Earth and put it out there, and no, that would be unfair to the supernova. But mm. on the line, we've got Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. They're anti-nuclear. I don't know what he, what's your title these days, Dave? Nuclear free these days. Nuclear, nuclear free. free. Nuclear free. That's nuclear a nice free. one. That's, I like it. Yeah, okay, that'll do. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, but it's not. Unfortunately, it's very expensive, and um, we'll come to that because just can we. Incidentally, Dave, um, we teed this up yesterday because the government appointed a pro-uranium, a, a pro-in fact nuclear energy person as the uh, new chief scientist. But uh, it's related to that anyway. But this morning's headline in the Financial Review, P1, you probably saw, coalition warns to nuclear, and um, on the front page they're very strongly pushing, of course, that. Um, we could be the, keeping open the possibility of adopting nuclear energy to fulfil Australia's baseload electricity, etc., etc. So it's all over the front page today. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, again, like you're ahead of the pace on city limits. Um, but, um, the yeah, there is a, a, a really renewed um, push. It comes, in, it comes in cycles, this one, Kevin. Um, and right now we're in the middle of a, a very significant renewed pro-nuclear push at a, a political level. Um, and in some parts of, of the commentariat. I suppose the other thing that's interesting at the moment um, is that the political push also includes um, a, a very significant development, which is a South Australian state-based Royal Commission into exploring options for increasing involvement in the nuclear industry in SA. And part of that includes looking at uh, nuclear power, but increasingly it's looking at um, the, the really uh, major constraint to nuclear power which is um, waste management so there's a big push on for a bunch of international companies looking at South Australia as a waste dumping site so from from uranium mining through to a lot of chatter in Canberra and elsewhere about nuclear power through to um, a a growing push that Australia becomes a global nuclear waste dump um, this issue is it's firmly back on the radar. Yeah and um and of course, this bloke, um, his name's Alan Finkel, the new bloke. He 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 did say yesterday in an interview I heard he talked about the fact that we had to get off fossil fuel, but he said we have to be off fossil fuel within about forty years. Now, he, this wouldn't be the most enthusiastic burst of getting off it I've heard of. Yeah, like we we obviously um, uh, both see an urgent need and also a clear ability to to um, exit dirty energy quicker than that. The good look. There, there is um, good news with with um, Alan Finkel's. Um, we don't do good news on this show. No. You're going to okay. have to stop. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well. No. No. Right sorry. Now. Go on. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, look. The positive, you know, c- construction of this is that there is a chief scientist who said that we've got to move to zero emissions. Um, we've got to get away from coal, and that's uh, so. In a period of time, we've come from a prime minister who says climate change is crap to a chief scientist who says we've got to turn off the coal tap. Now, there's, you know, the timeline needs to be fast-tracked and we agree with the destination but not the flight path. Like, you mm. don't turn off coal and embrace nuclear. That's, that's completely crazy on a whole range of fronts. It won't work and it's dangerous and it is a remarkably retrograde step. The positive is that saying let's get out of coal cracks open a bit of space for people to say, okay, this is now 
increasingly inevitable, not only desirable, not only essential for human and planetary health, but it's increasingly inevitable. If you look at the big end of town, there's money moving away from coal. Money doesn't like uncertainty, and, and, and coal's future is increasingly uncertain. So, you know, um, you can have the Minerals Council having all sorts of Facebook likes, I love coal, but the reality is that big end of town is liking it less and less, and money's moving away from it. The price points for renewables are dropping. The price inputs for coal and dirty energy are increasing. So, you know, this is another push. His appointment, Dr Finkel's appointment, you can see it as another positive push towards um, the inevitability of the end of old King Coal. Um, but, you know, the, the key thing here, Kevin, as you said, is is uh, that that cannot come. You, you don't um, uh, exit one crisis and embrace another. Like, nuclear is dirty, it's dangerous, it's desperately expensive, it's very unpopular and it creates a waste, an intergenerational burden that not one country on earth has got sorted or, was it, or is within a bull's roar of getting sorted. Mm-hmm. So he, you can't after Fukushima say it's clean. He equates of course, um, he, he, he equates uh, solar, wind and nuclear together as all um, non-polluting sources and, it, and therefore says that it's, it's the same. Um, but I, I would think in the long term, economics are going to come into it anyway, aren't they? Oh, they'll have to. You know, well, first of all, that one, increasingly there's a lot of people, pro-nuclear people, who, who use the term, rather than use the word renewable, um, which is used by those promoting clean, sustainable genuinely renewable energy options. The word used is low carbon. Mm. Um, And that then means that you can legitimately, like intellectually legitimately, say, well, nuclear is low carbon fuel compared to coal. That then sidesteps all the other problems, the security problems, the safety problems, the waste problems, the cost problems, the decommissioning, et cetera, et cetera. On it goes. And you link link it in like... um, uh, solar and uh, wind, which are enormously effective in increasingly growing and very popular. There's a million houses, Australian houses, with solar panels on the roof. So that's right across, you know, suburbs, class. It cuts across right, lots, of, lots of places. People like solar. It works and they like it. And so if you can tuck nuclear in behind that and, and act as if it's um, in the same camp, that's, uh, you know, a marketing and PR win. So that's, that's one to be um, very alert of in, in the coming dialogues. Carbon is one criteria. Uh, it's, a, it's a really important one, but it's one. And you have to use a few other lenses when you're talking about a nation's energy structure. You, you mentioned money, and the money story is really important here because nuclear power, where it's being built around the world, it's, it's, it, it's flatlining. Post-Fukushima, the industry's flatlining. And in the Western world, it's under sustained pressure. The reactor fleet's ageing and it is shrinking. There's no question. Um, so at the start of the century, it was uh, provided 18% of the world's power. Now it provides 10 Like it's dropped 50%, near on 50% in 15 years. And that trajectory is continuing. There's 400 reactors, 440. 50 of them are still switched off in, in Japan and they'll be contested, each one. So there's 400 happening today. And 100 of them are old, are within a decade or so of their safe operating life. And they've got to be... Either two things will happen. They will either be retired, which they need to be, or else the industry will say, look, we're never going to get another one built. So can we just do some hay band and hope? Can we gaffer tape the pipes? Can we keep our fingers crossed and give us a licence extension? And if they do that, they'll probably get it in some countries. But that will increase 
the likelihood of more mishaps, more significant accidents, more leaks, spills and, and releases, and it will shrink their social licence, which is already contracting like a billabong in the hot, dry season. So how, the do- sorry, sorry, Corey, just, just to say the dollars everywhere are crueling this industry. How effective is the decommissioning process? Oh, it's remarkably unproven. It's, it's probably the, the, biggest, the, the, the biggest challenges in the nuclear and the biggest unknowns with technology, cost and the operational ability to actually do it, Corey, are, are the back end, of, they say, of the nuclear chain which is uh, management of radioactive waste and the decommissioning of nuclear reactors. It's prohibitively expensive and it is really unknown territory. What basically happens now is that reactors are mothballed on site and people just call it um, extended, uh, extended care and maintenance pre-decommissioning. There's very few examples you can point to where a reactor has been pulled apart, where a site has been rehabilitated. Those where there has been work done have been always blown the budget by orders of magnitude and provided enormous technical complexity along the way. So the, these, these are uh, major, like there's 400 plus of them, and they are major perpetual technical and financial black holes for now and into the future. And they're being hand-passed from, you know, from chain to chain of politician and chain to chain of industry person because you don't want to be the one at the energy utility in the US that then says we've got to start decommissioning this plant because it will cost a fortune and raise a whole range of problems. In fact, just last week, um, a Chinese company came in, or China came in to join a French company to build one in Somerset in England, um, mm. fifty-four billion, I think, or fifty-one billion Australian dollar one. Uh, yet, a, yet a Greenpeace survey in Britain showed less than a third, twenty-nine percent of people only supported a new nuclear power plant. Absolutely. Look, and, and actually I'm surprised in the sense that it was that it nearly hit 30% because mm. it, Hinkley C mm. as that plan, it's, it's desperately unpopular and the economics of it are extraordinarily bad and it's based absolutely on this complex, but complex in how it's been done, in how it's been orchestrated, but simple in its, in its absolute perversion and, and fundamental um, corruption of process whereby... Um, the, the government has said that they'll, they won't uh, provide uh, public funding, yet they are falling over themselves to shovel money to keep this uh, project going. And strong pro-nuclear voices um, in the Conservative Party, in the commentariat, even in the nuclear industry, Kevin, have come out and they, there was a, a piece uh, written that recently that was circulated around said, I'm pro-nuclear, but... And it basically was a whole set of, of um, commentators who are stridently pro-nuclear um, and said, but Hinkley C should not go ahead. And here are the reasons on economics and here are the reasons for perversion of process, etc., etc. It's interesting that you say that about the public um, acceptability or the public um, you know, uh, social licence of nuclear because I, I see, we, we see that there's, there's, there's a, a range of constraints. One is regulatory constraints about safety and waste management. That's why nuclear waste is such a, a bucket tr- uh, drag on the nuclear industry, such a constraint on, on expansion. Another is the economics, which are prohibitively expensive and mean that you either have to be... It, there has to be a, a deceitful public funding 
in a Western nation or else they are massively state-sponsored, for example, in India or China, mm-hmm. where stuff is getting, getting built. It's just a blank check from the state to build it because that's a policy decision. Yeah. It, where there's a market, the market kills nuclear. And the other thing that kills nuclear and constrains it is public acceptability. The Climate Institute did a, a survey here recently and it found that under 10%, less than 10 thought that nuclear was a desirable way to go in the future. So as well as the dollars, as well as the complexity, the regulatory and legal challenges, because nuclear power is unlawful, illegal in Australia, as it is, there's also a point that every politician looks at, and particularly when you get six months out of an election, and that is, will it float? Will it float with the people that put me into this spot and keep my career secure? And I would say strongly that it won't. And indeed, it it won't, even if it goes to schedule, and these things often don't, it won't open for another 10 years, by which time one would imagine that that, uh, genuine renewable energy will have come a long way down the track. Oh, absolutely. And 10 years has been very, very optimistic, I reckon, Kevin. I think think the industry might might quote you back, um, because it, it would be longer than that. There's no bipartisan political support. Like Labor at their at their federal national at their national conference earlier this year reaffirmed opposition to nuclear power. So there's no bipartisan federal support. There's laws, existing laws, against nuclear power in Australia. There's not a, a, a nuclear culture. There's not a regulatory regime to uh, oversight. There's not uh, the the construction experience, etc., etc., etc. So it would be many years. And one of the interesting things that's fallen out in this um, in this South Australian Royal Commission is evidence there. And recently, the head of CSIRO Energy and also Ross Garno, who did the uh, you know a review under the Rudd government, the Garno report, they both said, look, renewables. Just that point you made, renewables. One, Garno said, once upon a time, I would have said nuclear had a role in Australia's energy mix. Now, I say it doesn't because renewables are just outflanking it. And the head of CSIRO Energy said the same thing. Renewables, cheaper, speedier to deploy. And I think um, if you put the two, if, if, if you strip aside adjectives and rhetoric and pre-existing position and you just put down on the table, here's what you get for your buck. Here's power for your buck. Here's how quick it can come online. Here's how quick it can be deployed. And these are the resultant costs and benefits. Um, it is screamingly clear that renewables are far superior on every criteria to nuclear, particularly in a country where there isn't an existing nuclear capacity and it would have to be an entire greenfield build. just doesn't float. Mm. Uh, and supporters of nuclear, of course, they, well, they're still, there are companies still pouring billions into researching nuclear fusion, saying that nuclear fusion would uh, have less, less dangerous side effects. Uh, comment on that? And, yeah, just, and perhaps explain what nuclear fusion well, is. Well, basically, nuclear fission is splitting the atom. Nuclear fusion is colliding them and joining them together. It's, it's a way... It's, the, we have a, a fusion reactor. It, it's, it's, it's a great hope for the industry, and there has been attempt after attempt because it's meant to be, you know, if, if it worked, you have this limitless and effectively wasteless closed cycle of... of uh, power production and in theory it's really attractive and i can see why for you know particularly for engineering sorts um it's like the holy grail it's like medieval alchemy but the long and short is like you've said kevin there has been hundreds of billions of dollars poured into this research and poured into facilities in france and japan and elsewhere and it has delivered 
well, it's very generous to say it has delivered bugger all. It has been high cost, a massive money and technical soak. It has been not proven. It remains unproven. And we, from our perspective, just say, look, we've got a nuclear fusion reactor. We have one, and it's called the Sun, and it's sitting up there nuclear fusing itself away 24-7. And the question isn't energy generation. The question is energy capture and distribution. We've got a reactor that generates more energy than we could possibly ever use on Earth, ever. And it's there for as long as we're there. Like, if it turns off, so do we down here. So it's there. So the challenge isn't like, how can we mimic it? The challenge is, how can we capture it? How can we store it? How can we distribute it? How can we fairly and cleanly share it? They're they're, they're the energy challenges now. And that's where fusion research should be, not in pouring billions into research programs that go nowhere and massively draw away talent and finite resources from the real energy challenges we need to address. Just um, in the last couple of weeks also, I think it was last week, in fact, there's a London-based group called Carbon Tracker, and it came out and attacked the big companies. It named named specifically BHP, Rio Tinto, Shell, and other fossil fuel producers, betting on over-optimistic demand growth for their products and ignoring rapid advances in technology such as solar and battery storage, etc., etc. And it goes on to say that these people are deliberately misleading. It uses Volkswagen as an example of how companies can mislead people and that investors should be very careful because their projections for coal going another 30 or 40 years are totally misplaced. Yeah, I think um, it's it's very interesting that one, and and I think uh, you know you can you, we all know like obviously coal is massive money like it's it's uh, in, it's in the order of um, we're the we're the biggest uh, exporter of coal in Australia, and it's I'm um, not quite sure I think it's in the order of fifty billion a billion you know roughly a billion a week like that's big money, and you look at BHP Billiton, you look at Rio Tinto. And they're some of the largest, well, BHP Billiton is the largest resource company in the world. So that is not only big money, but big connection, big political influence. This is a, an extraordinary, dirty energy in Australia is an extraordinarily connected and powerful institution. So, um, you know, they are going to look at covering all their options. They're going to say we're moving into renewables and exploring them and yes, these are exciting and have some interesting promise, etc, etc. And they're going to say, but, you know, the world still will need this, this and this and we're the main players in it. And they'll play both sides of the fence and build a new fence and knock down another fence. They'll just exist to maximise profit and they will do that. So I reckon that advice of um, don't just take their advice or their assessment is really sound. It's just a sound general principle. Um, you know, there's a German saying that no trader cries out bad fish. And if, you're, if your um, business is to rip and ship product from the earth, then you're going to say that people are going to need, you know, stuff to be ripped and shipped forever and we're best place to do it. So I think if you, if you look at the global rise of, of renewables and the application of renewables, um, I think we're, we're past the point now where uh, um, critics can say, oh, you know, it's some sort of niche, uh, you know, homespun, hobby farm style industry or some sort of hippie backyard thing. And we're past the point where someone can credibly say, oh, you know, well, what are we, how do we watch telly once the sun goes down and all that sort of nonsense. People are seeing 
that significant economies, Germany, the fifth largest economy in the world, has made a conscious decision to switch off nuclear power and to embrace renewables. And it is, it's doing it. it. It's actually doing it. It's generating not only electricity, but also jobs along the way. And that's a really significant thing. And so, um, you know, I think the other thing is, is I think, you know, Corey and Kevin, you, you sat and been part of and commented on social change over a long time. And, and we know that it's not linear. We know that it's not like, you know, this progression through four quarters of footy and then the siren goes at the end. Things can change rapidly and things that we thought wouldn't necessarily change. You know, the Berlin Wall looked solid and then it wasn't. And so coal, as the underpinning of the world's energy economy, looks solid, but it might just change rapidly and could just, with some political changes, with some technical uh, application, etc., and with the growing sense of people getting sick of uh, this, this sense that we cannot have a different and cleaner and better way of powering our planet, this can change very rapidly. For good or ill, that can, that can work. And so for those who say, oh, look, you know, I've done the projection and coal's solid for 40 or 50 years, you know, there's lots of people who have spoken with great uh, conviction that have been proven to be, you know, emperors with no clothes. It was encouraging yesterday to hear our Mr. I accept anthropogenic climate change tell us that coal has a long-term future and that uh, if we don't expo- exp- export it, someone else will. Um, um, obviously, he's uh, right on the ball. You well, don't you know, think that he's in a position to make laws for Australia? Sorry? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, he's, just, he's just acting as though he's not in a position to make laws for Australia, as uh, in uh, other people can't dig up our coal or whatever. Uh, absolutely. Mm. Look, look. there's one that, there's one that I, I draw some, um, some uh, sort of comfort from and, and look at, and, and particularly in the trade where, you know, you're going hard constantly against the uranium mining sector. Um, and that is the example of the asbestos industry in Australia. We've got heaps of asbestos. We've still got heaps of asbestos. The stuff works. We know its properties and we know that it works. But because of its environmental and particularly because of its human health impacts, and then because there were growing numbers of alternatives, those things combined for us to make a social decision, not a decision based on scarcity of product, but a social decision based on acceptability and impact, where we just said, no, we're not doing that one. And there's asbestos in the ground in WA and there's still people that dig and sell and use asbestos today in the world. So, but we've stepped away from that and I reckon, we'll step, I reckon that is a really good model both in the risk and in the way that we've stepped away from it to apply to uranium, we apply it to uranium, but also to coal. We can leave this stuff in the ground and build options which generate more jobs, particularly in regional Australia, which generate secure and diverse power deployable and rapidly deployable around the energy-hungry developing world that really needs it. They don't need whole lots of centralised power and poles and wires. They need electrical services, not megawatts, services, heat, cold, heat, cooling, light, those things, and renewables deliver it with greater security, Mm. cheaper, quicker and more deployable. Indeed, in in some of those villages around the world where they're saying that coal is going to drag the poor out of poverty, uh, solar particularly would be you know, clearly much more simple and, and a much easier way of doing it. Absolutely, Kevin. Look, in, in India, for example, India's got this uh, a, a policy where if you're a village of 3,000 people or less, we're not running wires from the grid to you. 
Okay, we're prioritising bigger places. So if you're 2,999, you're not going to get a taste of that power anyway. So uh, there's just one example. I think the other way that we see this is that leapfrog technology. Like if you look at the need as opposed to, you know, some um, institutional vision of how you deliver it. Say like if you look at communications, the need is for people to be able to be in regular communication, easy and rapid communication. Now the way that we did that and how we saw our older crew here grew up, there were poles and wires everywhere, underground cables everywhere, there were hardwired phones, etc., etc. Now... If you look in, for example, Africa, you can be in a really remote part of Africa and someone will walk past probably wearing a Premier League, English Premier League shirt and talking on a mobile. Or unfortunately an American baseball team or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Quite, quite possibly. But talking on a, and they've, they've jumped poles and wires. And in the same way as we've accepted that and understood that, embraced that in communications, we need to do that exact same thing in energy. Jump the poles and wires, get into quick and deployable, clean and convenient. In fact, um, BHP is using the if, if we don't do it, someone else will in Borneo at the moment where it's opening a coal mine and uh, it says, and in fact it says because the, there's uh, leases for logging all over the place that the, the area where the mine's going anyway isn't the pristine wilderness it was years ago. Um, and NASA, the head of BHP, said, I genuinely believe that if we proceed, we can make a very positive social contribution and help raise the standard of mining in the area. That's pretty encouraging. Well, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that's Jack NASA's overwhelming uh, consideration in the whole matter, Kevin. Yes, I'm sure yes. that's his primary consideration. Mm. I'm sure there's also lots of people in the Melbourne Magistrates Court right now using that same defence. <laughs> if I didn't do it, Your Honour, someone else would have. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're pretty amazing, aren't they? Uh, just before we go, Dave, but I did want to raise one other thing. The, the appointment of, um, of Finkel and yesterday Pine, the now science minister, having been a failed education minister, he's found a new area to fail in. Um, he said we need to have business and science working much more closely together. We've recently seen a pure business person with no science background appointed in charge of the CSIRO, again told we must bring, um, the CSIRO must work with business and, and so the bottom line goes well. And unis are also being told very much that they their research must link in with business and produce profit. Uh, this is a pretty dangerous trend, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It is a dangerous trend. Like you know, on one hand, you, you want to see um, you want to see science um, uh, alive. You know, you want to see science uh, um, have uh, a utility and applied. But on an, on an, on another hand, and and more concerning, is that um, it can't just be driven by utilitarian, like a, a completely sort of functional agenda, or be said like this science has to pay for itself. We need to have places where people from a scientific background, people dealing and grappling with ideas and possible solutions can do that and they don't have to meet KPIs about how many units did you turn out? Did you have a contract with a company? Did someone independently support your research? Was there a useful applicability and did the stock price go up as a result? We need to decouple that. And one of the real concerns with this trend that you've identified, Kevin, that I reckon, is that like we've seen just recently the CSIRO, you mentioned CSIRO, they, you know, they've done powerful and leading research and thinking in so many areas over so many years. And they've recently had over $100 million chopped off the budget. They've got staff cuts. They've got closing regional centres. Morale's down. There's a recruitment freeze. All in that context... Um, you know, the the easy option 
is to say, oh, well, you've got to be uh, link innovation with entrepreneurship. You need to commercialise. You need to find external partners, all that sort of talk. What you actually need to do is say, as a country, do we value scientific thought, scientific research? And then if the answer to that is yes, then some of that you will be able to fund through partnerships because it will have an easy applicability and commercial dimension. And that's okay, probably. But some of it won't. Some Mm -hmm. of it needs to be proper, just thinking, just that space to think, that space to explore, that space to find an idea via a roundabout way that then can be absolutely life-saving or world-changing. And you need to then make in public funding and protect in the public sphere the space for that quality time, be it in academia, be it in an institution like CSIRO, or indeed even in, in some areas of you know private research. It can't just be linked to an outcome. Yes, and of course the, the flip side is that a lot of areas that you know would really important research won't get done if they haven't got a bottom line that shows profit. Absolutely, and you know, and the other and thing that, is... That's such a finish, that, they, that would affect, particularly affect, say, humanities and social sciences in those areas. A- absolutely, absolutely, and, and increasingly functional and, and, and education becomes a certificate process rather than a, a thinking and broadening process. The other thing, obviously, is that this, and coupled with, you know, um, free trade agreements and the whole sort of policy architecture and the, the, the creepy constraints of the times we live in, equals, um, you know, that ideas get fast-tracked if they have a commercial applicability. Um, and so, you know, people own the intellectual property of, of medicines, of pharmaceuticals that can make a difference, of agricultural techniques that can make a difference, of energy techniques that can make a difference. And things might get advanced, but they equally might get shelved if they're, in, if they're running counter to the interest of those who currently have, you know, a vested uh, interest in, in how things are done. That's right. Companies patenting human genes, for instance, or something. Um, all right, Dave, look, we'll leave it there. Thanks. We've gone way over in terms of what we plan to do, but I'll just let you know our, the other second guest we had lined up for this morning had a family bereavement yesterday, so we excused her for the day. But um, So you've really done a very good job and we send not just filling in, but we've, uh, we've gone way over, but you've given us a lot of your time, so thanks, Dave. Well, I'm, I'm, sad, I'm sad to hear that news, and I wish, you know, uh, that's a, obviously all for everyone a, a really sad time. I hope it can be mm. as gentle as it can be in a yeah. crappy time. Yeah. And um, thanks, and Corey and Kevin, it's always... Um, Always really good to have a chat with you, Mob. Okay, thanks, mate. And um, okay, Dave Sweeney there, who's um, as we said, he's he's now the nuclear-free person at the uh, Australian Conservation Foundation. Free nuclear. Free nuclear. I was free nuclear. Is that what is that what he's advocating for? Yes, I think he is actually. Yes, he wants free nuclear energy for everyone. And just before, because of this program, we're going to have a go to a track called Road, um, Corey. Mm. But just before we do that, we did get a query apropos our earlier discussion and. Uh, do corporations, Australian and foreign, pay the Medicare level? The answer is no, because it's 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 uh, levied on individual wages, personal wages, and not on corporations. So no, they don't. But do they get the benefit? Yes. Well, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they do. <laughs> oh, silly, silly little question that one. <laughs> uh, All right, shall okay. we say goodbye? Yeah, we'll say goodbye and play a track. All right. Uh, next week, by the way, yeah. is back to it's back to the start of the month, so it's housing next week. Excellent. And not housing transport next week. John McPherson, John will be panicky, stricken, except he doesn't listen, I don't think, so that's okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, how, a transport, I keep saying housing, ha- transport John McPherson next week. Great. Okay, Corey, say thank yourself for doing a great job, by the way. Oh, yeah, I've, I've been awesome. Um, this is Nick Drake with Road. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM.
or 3cr.org.au and the time is 9.54. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.